So today we're continuing our sermon series on Montanism, or heresy, and this is arguably the oldest heresy that's out there. Um, and uh, I would like to say a lot of my sourcing for this came from um, early Christian history, so just so that's out there, I like to give credit to our sources as due. For your college students, make sure you do that. There's a Malone president that actually got in trouble for plagiarism, so study that up, it's pretty funny. Um, well, I guess it's not really funny, but I was just kind of like, that was a really good speech. I've heard that before. And a lot of people said that, and they're like, hey, you plagiarized. Um, but yeah, thank you for going to the next slide. So Montanism, like a lot of the heresies, is named after said person, which is Montanus in this case. Um, so he's the one that founded this. Uh, he claimed he was a prophet, the helper that Christ had promised. He likely derived his ideas from the Gnostic thought. And so what I mean by that the helper... When he read the passage in um, usually John 14, where it talks about, I'll send a great helper to you and stuff like that, uh, you will be empowered, he interpreted that as, okay, we're going to become these special helpers. He did not interpret that as being the Holy Spirit, um, which that's how we would interpret today, that helper is the divine helper of the Holy Spirit, not us being special prophets on our own. Uh, him deriving this from Gnostic thought um, I'm not going to go too much into Gnosticism, because Creed, about three weeks ago, I think it was three weeks ago, gave a really good sermon on Gnosticism. And so I just have a, a quick little um, like blurb about what Gnosticism is, just so we can get a, a background idea as we're talking about uh, Montanism. So Gnosticism is the ideology or theology or heresy, uh, depending on how you, you view it, uh, is that the world was created and ruled by a lesser divinity, the Demiurge, uh, being responsible for the creation of the universe and that Christ was an emissary of the remote supreme being, esoteric or special knowledge, which is where gnosis comes from, um, of whom enabled the redemption of the human spirit. And so you'll see kind of these elements coming into um, Montanism as well, not so much in the sense of that like it's a complete rejection of body and soul, but this idea that there's a special knowledge, this idea that like he would say, I'm a special prophet, I have this helper power, and his followers would say the same thing. So this idea that regardless of Christ and what he has done and what um, the Holy Spirit would then pour out into people that would empower them to have wisdom, that would empower them and empower us today to walk and be transformed in Christ, uh, he would hold it more as a special divine knowledge that like he got specifically and that somebody else could get specifically. And as we learned with Gnosticism, the problem with that is there's really no authority. There's really no gauge to say, well, where did this come from? Why do you have a special knowledge? Just because you say you have a special knowledge? Well, my special knowledge can be better than your special knowledge. So there's problems with that. Not much is known about him either. Um, really, all that we have is from those that opposed him. So we really don't have any of his actual work. We have people that wrote against his work. And as we'll find out, a lot of it was propaganda. Some of the early church responded to what he was doing and preaching with propaganda and to the point of getting politics involved to get his church removed. We don't do that today, though, not at all. But anyways, so we... Uh, we do know, though, that he managed to amass a good amount of followers and had an inner group of disciples like Christ. Uh, Montanus would go down to towns prophesying to all who would listen. So he kind of did kind of what Christ would do. He'd go from place to place to place, saying what he felt was compelled, um, that God had taught him. Essentially, it was, I want to go as far as to say it would be like um, Islam and Muhammad in the sense of being a divine prophet and bringing about another scripture. He wouldn't hold himself as saying, I'm bringing about new what would become canonized scripture. Um, but he would, he would hold to the argument that like, he was still bringing about a special message that was continuing from what Christ had done. You can go to the, oh, you're already there. Thank you, Sean. You're the best, man. So the teachings of Montanus, we can't really discuss a heresy unless we know what did he teach, what did he, what did he talk about, what his people speak of. 
And so, as I said before, we have no direct record of what he taught because most were likely destroyed by the early church. Um, so all we can go off is what others have said about him. So pretty much what we're going to be discussing is the probability of him speaking this heresy based off what people who didn't like him said about him and his people. Um, but there's still some truth to this. There's still some grains of good. And then there's also that Gnostic stuff that we would say, hey, that's not too good. And so one of his core beliefs was that all believers uh, could become a prophet, as he was, for Christ had promised the Holy Spirit to all believers. And this is in John 14, 15 through 17, kind of something being taken out of context. So I'm going to read that real quick. Uh, and that passage goes, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give another advocate to be with you forever. Advocate can also be helper. Um, this is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. So this is a good, important thing. A lot of times, and especially at Malone, and when you go through theology school and stuff, they'll say context is everything, and that you need to have a good hermeneutic. You need to have a good theology of knowing the history of what's happened before, um, and that the initial writings were written to that audience. It wasn't written to this 20th, 20th century audience. It wasn't written specifically for us. It can't affect us, and it still applies to us today, but it was written to an original audience. But what we can find here is that even to an original audience, they still took stuff out of context. And this is before like all of scripture was essentially canonized as well. So they were trying to, you know, say like, they were like, okay, we blind to the gospels. We're still struggling to determine, you know, the, the epistles. And even today we still argue about what epistles Paul wrote and which ones he didn't write. Um, but so this is a, a person that was trying to interpret this. Uh, and we would say today he interpreted it falsely. Um, but I think one of the problems we run into is we tend to, as a culture, if one person believes one bad thing, we think that all that they believe is therefore bad. Um, and I've used this example before. Sean Floyd um, would talk about, um, you know, a bachelor is a single man and using kind of basic logic. In the same sense, one of the examples that I use is that if a murderer comes up to you and says, do not kill somebody, just because he's done it doesn't mean that what he's saying or she says is wrong. We should still be able to see truth regardless if we, if the person is not perfect. And more importantly, we shouldn't be looking for perfection in people because we truly are followers of Christ. We recognize that that does not exist. That can only be found in Christ. So are we willing to hear that truth? And scripturally speaking, like God spoke through a donkey. And so you can take that to the, the profane term of a donkey. And if God can speak through that, why can't he speak through another fool? Why can't he speak through other people that maybe not aren't Christians, that maybe aren't good people. Now, it doesn't mean that it's holistic, uh, holistically salvific or that the, the words that they say or I'm not saying that's an inclusive thought that Islam is the same as Christianity as Judaism is. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is there's still good things to be found. There's still things that can point towards God, and if you look at towards it in Christianity and you take it through Christ's lens, it can be made holy. It can be made good. It can be used for the betterment of culture and the people around us. Um... Another one of his beliefs, which is one of the good ones that I personally think, is that all believers are equal, men as well as women. Two of his most trusted disciples were women. So in the very early church, because a lot of times, you know, like Eastern Orthodoxy or Catholicism, you know, they follow that tradition. And there's a lot of richness and truth to that tradition. But I think it's interesting that one of the earliest church movements had women in leadership. Uh, and not just leadership, truly were this person's disciples. And sadly enough, that's probably the biggest reason why the church opposed him. It wasn't the theology. It wasn't the Gnostic thought. It was the fact that he had women preaching and teaching, um, which is just crazy to me. And I'll, I'll kind of expound upon that in a little bit. Um, 
the services that were held or how they would conduct their services um, had prophetic declarations and a Spartan lifestyle was encouraged. And what I mean by Spartan lifestyle is that uh, minimizing entanglements with the physical world, so like Gnosticism, that you don't allow the physical things around you. They don't really affect you in a good or negative way. What matters is your soul. What matters is your, your, your gnosis, your knowledge. So as long as your mind is good, it doesn't really matter what your body does which as Christians we oppose. We say that it's a whole thing. We believe in the full bodily resurrection. We're not these little like hovering orbs that just float away, but truly our entire body is resurrected and it's a new perfected image um, just in the way that Christ was resurrected. Um, the thing that where the, the heresy I'd say is, is found though um, is that the, they believe in no clergy uh, and that only senior members could teach the doctrine, but this doctrine of church leadership is still brought up today. And what I mean is that um, even in some Quaker um, circles and things like that, they don't believe in necessarily having a elder or a um, main pastor. They believe in some of the early, not all Quakers, but the quaking, where essentially they would all gather in a room, and when someone felt compelled by the spirit, that was the person that would speak, hence the quake. Um, and so I would hold that is that I think there is, and this is where my own personal want to be Catholic comes out of me, um, I think there is truth to having leadership. I think there is truth to having authority. However, though, I am not in the, the position of saying that only those people can read scripture, only those people can interpret scripture, only those people can God speak through. And I think God can speak through anybody, and I think everybody should be enabled to read scripture and enabled to be taught how to read it. But I don't think something as powerful as what scripture is should be taken so lightly. I think you should be trained how to read it. I mean, Christ, God himself trained and taught and was educated and spent time with people and, spent, and gave effort in his life before he went out and did these things. And this is why even for us at City Church, like this is why we're trying to open up an internship possibility um, for Malone students and things like that, is we really wanna enable them to be taught how to, how to teach, how counseling goes, see the realness of what it means to be a pastor, that it's not just teaching, it's not just coming up here and sounding nice, but it's truly devoting your life to the church and recognizing the weight that that takes, and you truly have to be called to it. It shouldn't just be something that you want to do or you desire to do, but you should be called to it. And so even though um, some doctrines still hold that no clergy or no people in positions of authority should exist, um, the main thing, is, for me at least, is the idea of this inner light, this, uh, or not inner light, that's Quaker, but this idea of special knowledge, this gnosis, that regardless of who you are, you can just obtain all the information that regardless of if you have studied scripture, if you've gone to school to be a theologian or a scholar or a seminary or whatever, that anybody can just have it instantly. And don't get me wrong, I think God can do that. God can do things that transcend all of our understandings. Just chances are, for the most part, that's not how it works. Um, but again, even as a theologian, even as a scholar, am I willing to, uh, when I go next to the homeless person, can I hear his story? Can I hear his interpretation or her interpretation about what scripture means? Because chances are they may have something that may illuminate something in me that regardless of all the studying I've done, I hadn't come to know. You can go to the next slide, Sean. So the, uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, Montanism in the early church. So this is the church's response to this teaching. So the early church. This would have been before the schism, so before there was Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. Um, but when he came to the church, the church was still in its infancy and was able to do much about it. So what I mean is that uh, when this movement was happening uh, with Montanism, uh, the church still really hadn't developed like, hey, this is our core theology, this is our core, this is before the Nicene Creed, this is before we had our set dogma. So they really didn't know how to, to argue against it. So most of their arguments and most of their 
displeasure with what he was teaching came from a cultural stance, less from a theological or a doctrinal. Um, Montanus branched out and has had communities as far as North Africa. Um, Syrian and Anatolian bishops denounced his teachings largely because um, he was okay with women speaking in the church. So again, it goes back to this cultural thing that this is why they were so upset is that like, regardless of like Gnostic movements and Gnostic thoughts, they're like, hey, women shouldn't have authority in, our, in their culture. Why are they speaking? Why are they teaching? Um, and especially in the church, why are you allowing this? This was why they were so upset. So one of the reasons why I want to preach on this heresy is it's not just to talk about the heresy and to say like, hey, don't do this, but also say, look at the church's response. How are we as the church not responding like this is today? You know, to learn both sides and see how this argument unfolds, see how when we have problems with theological beliefs, how we handle them. Um, and so that's why I put uh, kind of jokingly, I said, you know, forget bad theology, you do something I don't like, thus you must be wrong. Uh, and I think we do this today culturally. We, we tend to, you know, like, well, I just don't like that person, or I don't like how they dress, I don't like uh, the politician they voted for, so therefore, you just must be wrong about everything, instead of actually considering what maybe they have to say, considering that maybe their thoughts on gun control is different than yours, but maybe on life and the sanctity of that it might be the same. They might be able to inform you in a way that you're unaware of, but if you're going to be so quick to say that, hey, you disagree with one thing that I believe, therefore it's wrong, this has gone on forever, uh, much like violence. You think after so many years we realize that killing each other doesn't work, but we still do it. Uh, so the church denounced his teachings, though, largely through propaganda, even to the point of harassing his followers. And I said, those uh, ancient simpletons, surely we don't deal with conflict in that manner today. You know, surely you can't go on Facebook and see, you know, some propaganda piece about what political candidate you like or don't like or what you think about some political issue, or what you think about sexuality, or all these different things like, we surely we don't act that way today, but we do. We still seek things that affirm us as opposed to seeking truth. We like to feel affirmed, and like to feel encouraged, and like to feel that we're right, more so than being transformed. If we truly believe that Christ is something that will transform us, and the spirit will indwell in us and change us, that means that there's parts in us that are wrong. So we have to be open for that wrongness. And even for myself, like, and for all of us, there will be a point when we enter into heaven and enter into eternity where there's going to be some belief about Christ, some belief about the church, some belief about each other that is wrong. We do not have all knowledge. We do not have all wisdom. And that can be scary. That can be frightening because you're like, oh, what do I believe then? But it's the beauty of it is have trust and faith in the mystery of Christ. Accept the fact that he has all knowledge, that he has all dominion over all things, that he knows all of history. He is a part of all of history. He is outside of time, space, and matter. That God transcends all these things and enables them to happen. That even when you read the Job account, you know, and we, a lot of times we try to attribute Satan and demons to affecting our lives and things like that, and there are times that that happens. I believe that. But more often than not, it's our own sin. It's our own problems that we have. But instead of saying, like, hey, maybe I'm just not a disciplined person and that's why all these things feel like they're piling up on me because I'm not taking responsibility to do anything. We're like, oh, devil's attacking me. And chances are it probably isn't. You're not really a threat. You're doing it to yourself and you're blaming it and you're pushing it onto Satan and pushing it onto these principalities that, like I said, I do believe exist when really that's probably not the case. It's probably the fact that instead of allowing God to transform you, you're trying to say, this is what I want my Jesus to look like. And so you're transforming your beliefs to line up with what you, Jesus, what, what you want Jesus to be, which the early church did this as well. Both of Montanus saying that 
I have the uh, ability to have the special uh, prophecy and that I can give this to other people so that they can be special prophets so that they are apart from other people. They're better than other people in terms of their spiritual well-being. They're better than other people. And the early church as well saying that like, hey, we don't think women should be in leadership. We don't think women should have the authority in the church. Uh, and so we're going to take this stance. So we're going to make our theology line up with that. Um, do you go to the next one? Yeah, thank you. So I, I want to finish it off by, or actually it should be the death of Montanism. Should be the next one. Or communion, that works too. <laughs> Trying to give me a sign to just stop talking. <laughs> so the death of Montanism happened around the late 4th century, uh, and it happened because the mainstream church uh, campaign against Montanism became more heated. Um, with some political clout, they were able to have the Montanist churches raised or completely destroyed. Uh, Montanists resisted for a brief time, but ultimately went into hiding uh, and kept their services secret. They would attend mainstream churches to keep a veneer or cover of responsibility. Uh, and this instance kind of happened in my life, and I'm not going to talk too much on it because I want to keep our, our sermon somewhat short so you guys can get home and work on stuff, and I can work on my plumbing. Uh, but uh, uh, a similar instance happened for me. I grew up in a Baptist church where they started up as a Baptist church. They later became non-denominational, um, and I was part of a youth group. And this pastor, part of that youth group, started to become very um, kind of into charismatic movements and stuff like that. And so when I say this story, please don't take it as me bashing uh, or saying that uh, spiritual gifts and things like that and the charismatic movement is entirely wrong. No, in this instance, it was. In all instances, no. I personally believe that spiritual gifts still exist today. Um, many theologians and other people don't. Um, and I think there's, there's argument to be had on both. Um, so what I'm saying is I'm, I'm not dismissing the spiritual gifts or saying that they're wrong. But this particular pastor was telling me that uh, I had not received the Holy Spirit because I didn't speak in tongues, uh, and that I had not received uh, Christ's love because I still had sin in my life, and that I, all these different things that was really kind of more of a legalism of that if you do this, Jesus likes you. If you don't do this, he doesn't like you. And if you are really of him, you'll have these special powers, you know? Uh, and, huh? <laughs> But then, so as I grew, I, I later on ended up getting kicked out of that youth group. They told me I was demonically possessed because I couldn't speak in tongues, or I couldn't prophesy, or I couldn't heal. Uh, I couldn't have a special prayer language, as they would call it. And later on, this pastor was then kind of called, well, not kind of called, he was kicked out and called a heretic. Um, but this all happened within secret. This all happened within the youth group. This all happened within this church that didn't believe in this, or that attitude of how it went about, or this theology specifically, but it was kept in secret. And this is why for us, it's super important that some of our best teachers are our youth leaders. I know a lot of places, they'll put their interns, or they'll put people coming up into the youth group. To me, those should be your best teachers. That is such a transformative part of their lives. And maybe it's just me also like kind of pushing my own, you know, past onto that saying, hey, don't do that again, because like that was horrible. Um, but because of that, when I went to Malone, uh, there's the theology that I was told was, you know, demonic or satanic or heresy. I hear these professors that are renowned amongst the world saying, like, oh, it's called this. And I was like, wait, people believe that? That's a real thing? You know, and to have that affirmation after seeking truth and being okay with following that truth, regardless of what the outcome was towards me. And so what I would say is the great flaw of Montanism and like my story 
is arguably what it shares with Gnosticism, that flaw being its rejection of clergy and its promotion of esoteric or special knowledge that cannot be questioned or gauged. And this was the problem that I faced even with the people within the church. It wasn't a matter of like me grabbing scripture and to my limited mind saying, well, this is what the Bible says, because at the end of the day, they're saying, well, this is what the Bible says, you know, but actually having information, actually having an education on history of the language, and so really giving the best informed, you know, belief I could. But they were doing the same, because at the end of the day, it wasn't about truth, it was about them projecting what they wanted to be true onto me, and saying, if you do not follow this, then you don't have this special knowledge. And, you know, spoiler alert, there is no special knowledge. Christ transcends that, and it can apply to all of us, and only he, if there is special knowledge, only he's the one that fully knows that. Go to the next one. And so this is why it's going to conclude with, you're special, you're the only one. It could have been because Isaac has started watching like Sesame Street and stuff like that, and I was a big Barney fan, so this stuck into the back of my mind. Um, but I thought this is how it can apply today, is that today we tend to see the world around us as inferior or dumber than ourselves. Um, this is the flaw of Montanism and the early church, where the Montanists are saying, I have special prophetic knowledge, and therefore you are wrong. The early church was saying, hey, you have women in leadership, and I don't like that, so therefore you were wrong. But this idea that we are looking at each other as lesser beings, we're looking at each other as you don't have as much intelligence as what I have, or instead of encouraging, for instance, you know, like, my, I'm big into pro audio and music and things like that, Micah is still a far better, or better audio engineer than me. Instead of saying, like, well, he's like that because he was given these opportunities, you know, and if I was given those opportunities, I'd be like, good. No, I should aspire to be like him and say, hey, can you help me with this? And encourage him to continue doing that. And so, we have to be careful with that mindset um, because it not only dampers our theology but also can enable us to dismiss truth and meaningful interactions with one another because our premise is wrong. That premise being, I know more than you and you are holistically beneath me. If our God lowered himself to wash our feet and to die on our behalf and resurrect again and give us the gift that only he deserves, we really have no right to say anyone else is beneath us. And if we truly are to model that to the world, it's going to look like that. It's not going to look like, you know, big houses and saying, you know, how great our church is. And again, not saying that if you have a nice house, you're a sinful, horrible person. Not saying that, but I'm saying the, the end goal is not to have or the gain. It's to pour out. It's through Christ that we've gained it all, and it's to give back into the world. It's to fix that brokenness that exists because Christ holistically broke himself so that way we could be restored and be his body. Um, this, I'm not going to go too much on, but these can, references of, Things that would kind of promote this train of thought that I'm talking about can be found in Galatians 3.28, uh, and the next one will be Matthew 10.22. I'm not going to read into them um, right now, just because I'm trying to keep the sermon not go too long. Um, but we also discredit those we perceive as having more, kind of what I was just saying with, with Micah. Um, we should be delighted for them and aspire to be more like them, or be able to reconcile that God blesses the wicked and the good, instead of looking at material gain or wealth and things like that and saying that that person must really follow Jesus. Like, let's look at the story of Mary. She's called blessed. You know, how, how did her story go? You know, like, here's this woman, has a child outside of wedlock, or is pregnant outside of wedlock. A young woman um, has no place to, to go. Her son is born in a stable. The son who lives a perfect life, life that she would come to understand is Christ, is God. So even that, just fathom that, that, like, you know, parents think their kids are awesome. Imagine what, like, Mary thought, like, crap, my, my, my son is God, like, how do I really, like, punish him? You know what I mean? Uh, like, it's like the other way around. Like, he would just probably just, like, probably not. Christ was humble. But, uh, but it, it's one of those things that 
as that continued going, so he lived this perfect life, and then arguably we don't know really what happened to Joseph. He could have he died. But at the end scene, we have Mary there with uh, Christ. And so her son, who lived a perfect life that was constantly giving to those around them, healing them, raising people from the dead, is crucified and called a thief. And so through all of this, Mary is called blessed. So are we open for that blessing in our lives too? Are we open that maybe Christ's blessing and following Christ isn't that of wealth, isn't that of material gain, but could be that of poverty, could be that of suffering? I assure you that there will be suffering in some, some degree regardless, but we need to be open to that. We can't say that this is what I want my Jesus to do for me. We need to more importantly say, Christ, where do you want me to go? Be like Abraham and walk with him. As, as I talked about before, that word in Hebrew to walk with God meant to go back and forth. It wasn't like Abraham just arrived. He was constantly walking with God, and God was walking with him. The other thing is that we culturally focus on our individuality far more than our community. And this happened with Montanism, is focused on, I have this special knowledge, and so therefore, that is what is right for the community. The early church, like I said, with the women in leadership, this is culturally not what we do, so therefore, that is not good for community. But we do this today. Sexually, we find our identity in, in our or our identity is found in our sexuality. And the sense of, there's many people that even attend this church that are gay. Um, there's many people that I spend most of my life with that are completely against what I would hold as scripture. But at the end of the day, like their identity is not found in their gayness. It is not found in they're more than just, that's a part of them. But that is not all that they are. And we do this theologically, like, you know, like, oh, I'm a Calvinist, you know, or, oh, I'm, you know, whatever. You know, and so therefore, I have to believe everything that is Calvinistic. When that shouldn't be where our identity is found, that can be a part of us, but that isn't it. And the list goes on and on. So I put materialistically, psychologically, and then any Lee, um, because it really can. When you identify as this is me, this is all that I am, you're taking that away from Christ and also arguably committing the first sin, um, where I would take more of the Augustinian approach that man sinned not by choosing to do evil, but choosing to do a lesser good. There is knowledge of good and evil, and knowledge is an aspect of God, and they chose that over submission to God, over following God, and we do that today. We like social justice more than all the aspects of God. We pick an attribute of God and say, this is what I want my God to be, and we neglect all the others. You know, for, we'll be like, oh, we want, we want wrath if you hold wrath to be a nature of God, but we'll hold wrath, but we forget grace. You know, we'll have mercy, um, but we forget discipline and responsibility. You know, these are the attributes of God. And instead of saying, this is the parts I like and the parts I don't like, I'm just not going to follow. At that point, that's no longer Christ. That is no longer the Christian God. That is no longer Trinity. That is the Christ that you have made. That is your own personal God. And so we can do this with all those things. And um, I forgot to mention it earlier, but one of his uh, oldest, or probably his, it was the oldest, but the person that opposed um, the Montanists and their movement the most was Tertullian, which is arguably one of the earliest church writers or authors. Some people would call him a theologian. I, I guess everyone's technically a theologian, but I would consider him more of a writer. Um, but what was really interesting about him is that even though he disagreed with them and was this biggest uh, person that opposed the Montanists and their movement, he's like, there's something about them, though. It's just nice to be around. There's something about just community with them. There's something just about spending time with them that even though he disagreed with them, he still was with them. And I think about even our oracle ministry, this is the point of that, is that seeing God's image-bearing quality on all of those we encounter, seeing the fact that they are owed, or not even owed, 
they are just as welcome to the grace of God as what I am. And we tend to, like, once we're in, like, that special camp of saying that, like, oh, I'm saved, you know, like, everything's good. So, therefore, like, I can start making judgment calls on, like, hey, you need to be saved. When, in fact, I need that grace just as much daily as the person that is not saved. And we need to be open to speaking like that with people. We need to be open to say, yeah, I disagree with that. And maybe I can't, you know, argue the best on it. But I still want to be around you and I still want to love you in the way that Christ has loved me. And so uh, I wanted to end with this because I think this is where it kind of all boils down to, at least with this heresy and with the early church, like the, the core problem as to why they're committing these acts or doing the wrong, whether it be heresy or just saying, I don't like your leaning with women or I don't like how you're talking about special knowledge. But I think it derives from fear. Uh, and this is one of the things that Tertullian said, is that fear is the foundation of safety. And so I think it's just a, a really good quote, uh, a really good thing to think on. So here's this person that arguably argued the most with the Montanists, and this is his outcome from that time period. This is his thought from that time period. And we do it today. It is far easier to say, like, hey, worry about all these different things and make a decision based off that worry or make a decision based off of, like, the fear that we have as opposed to the love that Christ brings. And that can be found in 1 John 14, and we know that perfect love casts out fear. Um, but will we be known by how we love or by how we fear? And I want us to walk away with just really thinking is that if we, if Christ is love and if God is love, as we hear in John, and if perfect love, Christ cast out fear, and the fears that we're encountering, um, imagine Job, right? So Job, we know the story of that, whether you take it as a uh, metaphor, hyperbole, uh, parable, or as a literal account, um, it still applies. Uh, Satan still had to submit to the authority of God. He still had to say, can I do this? And so even whatever is going on around us, the fears that are kind of embodying the world around us or even the personal anxiety or depression that we go through, and please don't hear something out of this. I'm not saying that if you're going through those things that medication is wrong. I'm not saying that at all. I'm more speaking broadly or generally in the sense if you're feeling anxious. Um, but if you're going through that stuff, God has allowed that to happen. He's enabled that to happen. He may not delight in it. He may not be happy that like you're going through this, but that's how growth happens. You know, I think of a runner, you don't just start running a marathon. You have to stretch, but when you stretch, that first two minutes is not enjoyable. But you have to be stretched out so you can start running. And this happens with us, that suffering is what produces that perseverance, that produces that fruit, that produces that opportunity for us to grow. And if Christ suffered, and we're supposed to be followers of him, chances are that's gonna happen to us. And if that perfect love casts out that fear, having the understanding that fear is happening and God is a part of it. He will walk with us in that. And he himself has lowered himself to suffer to a degree that most of us will never experience. So that's my call for us this week, is that we would focus less on our individuality, more on the community, that we would not be like the Montanists and think that we're special and above other people. But we'd also not be like the early church and say that just because you believe one thing I disagree with, I'm going to reject all that you believe. And that as we go through the week, fear would not be our motivator, but Christ and his love would be. So I'll pray real quick, and then Zach's going to lead us into communion. Heavenly Father, I thank you just for um, your scripture, Lord. I thank you for allowing us to have documentation. I thank you that this pasty white man up here is able to receive the same love uh, as the people that it originated from, Lord. I thank you that um, you are not bound by race or any of those things, Lord, but you transcend it all, and that we are all a part um, of the body, Lord. 
I pray that as we enter into communion, Lord, that we would ask ourselves how we can be broken and poured out into the communities around us, into the families around us, into the friends around us, Lord. Pray that we would glorify you in that all that we do, and not for the sake of our own image, Lord, but for your glory. I pray that when we would pray, it would be in secret, and if it's not in secret, Lord, may it be so someone can come to know you. Lord, I pray that if we are called to heal those around us or be with those around us, Lord, that it would be because you have called us to do it, not so we look like we have special knowledge or power. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to be humble. I, allow, I pray that you would allow us to be merciful and gracious, um, have wisdom, Lord. We know that you pour that freely out to us, Lord, and so I pray with your Holy Spirit you would do that. But Lord, I pray that we would honor you as the triune God that you are, Lord. I pray that um, we would not just say, well, I like the Holy Spirit, but I don't like the Jesus, or I like the Jesus, I like the Father, but we would accept you for who you are and allow you to transform us as opposed to us transforming you into what we want you to be. Lord, we thank you for all you do. It is your name we pray. Amen.